Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Today, we're going to finish Acts, and we're going to start in verse 16. Uh, in a message I'm calling, The End of Acts, It's Not Over. The End of Acts, It's Not Over. Hear with me the word of the Lord. We'll start in verse 16, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Would you pray with me? God, it's not over. The the gospel is on the run to the ends of the earth. I pray, Lord, this day that we would take in the entire message of Acts, not just to have a head knowledge, but to have hearts that burn for the glory of our King, whose mission is global and whose gospel is the power of God and the salvation for the Jew first and then the Gentile. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Luke began writing his book, he told us that his first book, which was the Gospel of Luke, was about all that Jesus had begun to do and to teach. 
The implication of that statement is profound for our understanding of the book of Acts. What it means is that Acts is about what Jesus continues to do. His implication is that Jesus, installed as God's risen and ascended and now triumphing king, would continue his work. How? Through his spirit-empowered and transformed people. His instructions for his people between his first return and his or his first coming and his return would be solidified during the time of the apostles who walked with him and saw him after the resurrection and his work would continue that is his, his kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth through spirit empowered witnesses what Israel was not able to accomplish on their own Jesus would accomplish through his spirit driven, empowered people. Acts is about the reign of Israel's king. Acts is about the reign of the risen Lord Jesus, the unfolding of God's plan to fulfill his promises to Israel and bring people from all nations of the earth into his everlasting kingdom, starting with a remnant of the Hebrew people. In the first two chapters of Acts, We see Christ the Lord reigning over Jews from all the nations who were gathered in Jerusalem when they trust in Christ and receive the Spirit in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, Peter tells us, as Peter preaches Jesus as Israel's long-awaited king. In chapters 3 through 8, King Jesus is not stopped even by internal opposition. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Or the troubles with the Hellenist widows. What are we going to do? We, we're not able to serve all the widows. And so deacons are appointed. And Jesus also isn't stopped by external opposition. Think of the, the stoning of Stephen or Saul persecuting believers from house to house. The king is ruling and reigning in righteousness. He's unstoppable. In chapters 8 and 9, the reign of our king spreads to enemies and outcasts, with even Samaritans hearing and receiving the gospel, and even a God-fearing eunuch from Ethiopia who traveled all the way to Jerusalem to get to the outside of the temple, but because he was a eunuch, the law said he couldn't get into the temple, but on his way back home to Ethiopia, Philip confronts him and encounters him. He's reading Isaiah, and he shares the, the gospel according to Isaiah with this eunuch who receives Christ, and though he couldn't go into the physical temple, becomes a part of God's worldwide temple because the Spirit of God changed him, and he's united with the presence of God on the inside. He goes back home to Ethiopia, where soon a church is founded, we know from church history. Are you all excited yet? Then, of course, we we see the enemy of King Jesus, the persecutor of the church. Saul rises up. He's going to be the the mega-Jew, the the main Jew, the Jews' Jew, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin, an eighth-dayer, circumcised on the eighth day, righteous according to the law. And he's going to dominate the church and stamp them out before they can get started. And he's not being very effective, and so he's going to Damascus because Christianity has spread there and he's going to bring them back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and perhaps killed. But on his way to Damascus, he meets King Jesus. The one he thought was dead and was a joke dominated his life and changed it in an instant. And from there, 
We see Paul become a missionary of the gospel. We, we see the, the reign of King Jesus extending over the nations. First with Peter taking the gospel as far as Leda and Joppa and to Cornelius and his entire house. Then the Jew and Gentile church in Antioch is established and Jesus rescues Peter from King Herod Agrippa. Even King Herod Agrippa has no authority over the king of kings. and He falls down dead. The kingdom of God, despite hardship and opposition, is reaching all kinds of people and expanding well beyond now the historic boundaries of Israel. God's people, united with His Son and victorious King, are, are overspreading the globe. It's almost like the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven, just as He taught us to pray. The gospel is heard and the Spirit is transforming hearts and uniting people with Christ. And from here we see Paul's missionary journeys as he's commissioned by that Jew-Gentile church in Antioch to reach people in places like Cyprus and Pisidia and Lyconia, always starting first with Jews and then proceeding to Gentiles when the Jews no longer welcome him. In Acts 15, the, the Lord clarifies that Gentiles do not have to follow customary Jewish laws in order to join God's kingdom. The qualifications for entry into the kingdom of God have been satisfied by Jesus. You can get into God's kingdom simply through faith in Jesus. Then Paul hears God's call to Macedonia and ministers in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus for three years before refreshing the churches on his return to Jerusalem. During that trip, the Spirit and the risen Christ confirmed to Paul that he will indeed get to Rome. And now when we enter this text, he is in Rome. After two years of unjust imprisonment for a crime he never committed, multiple trials and a shipwreck in the Mediterranean and a snake, snake bite on Malta, Paul finally gets to Rome. And what does Paul do in Rome? Paul does in Rome what he's done virtually everywhere else. He shares the gospel. That's our first point. Paul never lose sight, loses sight of his mission. He never stops sharing Jesus as the hope of Israel with Jews, even though that message has cost him greatly. The, the very message that he shares is the message that's gotten him in prison. Before we see Paul engaging with Jewish leaders in Rome, we learn in verse 16 that he remains a prisoner but is allowed to stay by himself with one soldier, just one soldier. In verse 30, we learn he stayed in a personally rented space. Peterson says, Only the privileged and aristocratic few could afford to purchase or rent private houses, so it is likely Paul lived in a room or rooms in one of the many thousands of rented buildings in Rome. In verse 20, Paul mentions he's wearing a chain, but the lower level of security overall and his own dwelling place suggests that he was not viewed as a threat. He was afforded as much freedom as a prisoner could have in that day. So what does Paul do with his freedom? Look at verse 17. I find it interesting that he waits three days because all of our hope originates on the third day. Why not wait three days? Get settled in your own place. And then on the third day, he gathers the local leaders of the Jews, to tell them about the greatest third day, about the hope of Israel that is secured on the third day, to tell them that he's not against them but for them. And he, in verse 17, he calls them brothers, not because they are Christians, but because they are blood 
relatives, biologically. Paul is a descendant of Abraham, and, and so are they. So the, they're all a part of the same fam, if you will. Paul has nothing against his fellow Jews or their customs, so long as they don't become an idol that would prevent them, his physical brothers by blood, from becoming his spiritual brothers through the bloody death and resurrection of Jesus. They've got to know Jesus. They've got to know the king that was sent through Israel to deliver them from sin, death, hell, and the grave. And despite his goodwill for his Jewish brethren, it was Jews who had accused him and led him to be delivered into the hands of the Romans in the first place. And yet, time and again, when the authorities examined Paul, they knew that he was innocent, verse 18, but local Jewish leaders had made it politically inconvenient to release Paul, so Paul had to appeal his case to Rome. And he's explaining to them, that's how I got here. And then in verse, verse 20, Paul gives us a money quotation. A mic drop. By the way, did you know quotation is the noun and quote is the verb? That, that was just for free. right? When I wrote that out, I wanted to say he gives us a money quote, but quote is a verb and quotation is a noun. He gives us a money quotation. Sorry, this is a grammar nerd in me coming out. Um, but, but Paul wants these Jews to know Jesus and he, he wants a real shot at them hearing him out. So how does he begin in verse 20? It is, he doesn't say it's because of Jesus that I'm on trial. He says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul is not against Israel. He's not against Jews. He's not against God's promises in the Old Testament. In fact, he is presenting the very person in whom Israelites can find true hope. Paul doesn't want his chain to distract them from the fact that he has the message of their hope. He wants a real shot at introducing them to King Jesus, the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel, do we believe this church? The hope of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus. The hope of Israel is Jesus. Israel's hope is Jesus, according to Paul. He's on trial for the hope of Israel, and the hope of Israel is Jesus crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. Paul did not look to current events, the calendar, Fox News, or geopolitical movements for Israel's hope. He looked to the cross and the empty tomb and a risen king who will raise up with him all on the last day to life everlasting, who repent and believe in and, believe in and follow him in his mission, in fellowship with his people. Jesus is the hope of Israel. Paul's not a prisoner because he's against God's promises to Israel. He's not a prisoner because he hates Jewish people. He's in prison because leading Jews in Jerusalem refused to see their hope had come and is found in Jesus Christ alone. That means that Paul, though he's opposed by Jews is actually, as Peterson writes, a faithful Jew. He proclaims the fulfillment of Israel's hope, and he should have been honored by these Israelites, but instead he is bound by a chain. In verse 21, these Jews in Rome indicate that this is the first that they have heard about Paul's legal battle. They've, they've received no official letters or 
informal reports about the situation. So in verse 22, they tell us that, that they view Christianity as a sect, kind of like the word we would use as a cult, an offshoot, to be ran, run away from, that is, that is largely spoken against everywhere they go. To them, the idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to Israel is more than a little sus, as Gen Z would put it. But they want to hear Paul's take. So in verse 23, they take the initiative. They scheduled a day and brought even more leading Jews to hear Paul. And Paul expounded the good news of the kingdom to them. The word expound means to set before someone, to, to lay it out, to drop the, the facts and the information and to, to walk them through a fact set, to show them what? The kingdom of God and to convince them about Jesus. And he did it. Do you notice how long he did it? From morning to evening. From morning to evening, he's expounding to them what they need to know by doing two things. First, testifying to the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is available, that it's here, that it's advancing because King Jesus has come. And two, that he was trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. In other words, he spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. And he, what did he tell them? What do you suppose that he told them? Well, since it was all day, I, I, I suspect that he told him that Israel's Passover lamb and suffering servant and victorious warrior king had come. And, and church, he has come. Hope for people from all nations living all over the planet is found in one place, in King Jesus. It's found in bowing at his feet, at the feet of Israel's everlasting king, the hope of Israel. How should we respond then in light of what we see Paul do when he gets to Rome? These Jews have accused him falsely and he gets to Rome to encounter some more Jews. And does he say, I hate you people? He says, no, let me tell you about the hope of Israel. So what should we do? We should pray. We should pray for sons and daughters of Abraham to trust Jesus and be prepared to share Jesus with any Jew who will listen to us. But we should also know that Jesus' rejection among Jews does not mean that God has failed. Jesus' rejection by Jews doesn't mean that his kingdom has been stopped. Instead, we know, secondly, the good news of God's salvation will be embraced by many Gentiles. The good news of God's salvation will be embraced by many Gentiles. Any Gentiles here this morning that are thankful that, that you've heard the good news of the gospel? Many of us, amen? In verse 24, we see that like in many of Paul's stops during his earlier missionary journey, some Jews were convinced, and, and here the, the verb means we're in the process of being convinced, and others disbelieved. This led to disagreement among these Jewish listeners, and they left after Paul, in verses 26 through 28, quotes from Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And before he quotes from Isaiah, in verse 25, he sets up his final statement. Literally, in the Greek, it says, he had one word. 
Just one more word. And his word is, the Holy Spirit was right about what he had said about their fathers through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now, I want to take a brief segue pastorally for a moment. Verse 25, we could have just preached a sermon on verse 25, because here Paul is making an important affirmation. God inspired the book of Isaiah. Paul understands that the prophets and the law that we find in the Old Testament weren't just some books written down thousands of years ago by some dudes, just with some inspiring thoughts along the way. Rather, Paul is affirming that the Old Testament is literally from God. That God inspired them. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says the scriptures are breathed out by God. Is God perfect? Yes. Which means God's word is perfect. His word is a reflection of his character. The Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy summarizes the Bible's teaching about the Bible in this way. Holy scripture being God's own word written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by His inward witness and opens our minds to its meaning. And here... Paul is saying that the disbelief that he's encountering among the Jews before him suggests that it is an unhappy Father's Day in Rome. And it's an unhappy Father's Day in Rome because here's what he's saying. You are refusing to listen to me, to Paul, just like your fathers refused to listen to Isaiah. Do you follow Paul's argument? The fruit, unfortunately, has not fallen far enough from the tree. When presented with the hope of Israel that that comes through a crucified and risen Messiah, they're not listening. As Kellum writes, the message of verse 26 and 27 is that God brings judgment upon people who go on too long and too far in rejecting His message to them. In spite of Isaiah's efforts and now Paul's efforts, many who seemed best positioned to hear and believe the gospel are instead hearing but never understanding. In the Greek, it's the emphatic. It's the no, never. It's the use of a double negative. You say you can't use a double negative. Well, you can in Greek. And the only reason you use a double negative in Greek is to, to stress that something will not happen in the extreme. Who, who will not and will never understand, verse 26. They, they see, but they never actually perceive. They never grab it. They never get it. And the reason in verse 20 is found in verse 27. It's not because God is unclear. 
It's not because God doesn't care. It's not because his word is not accurate. It's not because his word cannot be understood. Why don't they hear? Why don't they see? Verse 27, their heart has grown dull. The word means calloused or or hard. They won't be softened by the word of God. Rather than being infused with the glorious gospel of hope, they had gotten inoculated against the gospel with a perversion of law-keeping and self-aggrandizing traditionalism that blinded them to the glory of the king that they should have been seeking all along. And the the verdict of verse 27 is severe, is it not? In general, The Jewish people are rejecting Jesus with dull hearts and dim ears and downed eyelids. But Peterson writes this. Isaiah was given to understand that a remnant would believe and would survive the coming judgment. We see that in Isaiah 6.13. We also see Paul talk about it in Romans 10.20. And the flow of Luke's story suggests that the same is true for Jews in Rome. And here's why. As Peterson writes, in in this form of rhetoric, although God's desire is that they might see, that they might hear, that they might understand in turn, it is expressed negatively as a mocking challenge. He writes this, it's like trying to persuade people to action by saying, you would never do that, would you? Anybody ever done that? Growing up as, as a young man, as a boy, hanging out with the boys, being in the woods, building forts and stuff. Oh, you would never jump off of that limb into that creek. There goes little Johnny. You want to watch? Watch me do it. That's, that's kind of what Paul and Isaiah are doing here. Their hearts are really hard, but they're hoping by challenging them with the hardness of their heart that they might actually, you see it at the end of verse 27, turn. And what's interesting in that last line of verse 27 is the grammar changes. And God says, not that he would save them, but it's actually that he will save them. Man, if they they turn, God will save. And maybe maybe you're not ethnically a Jew this morning, but maybe you're just a hard-hearted Gentile who's been around church stuff your whole life, you've checked the boxes on your envelope, you've brought your offering, you've done your good works, and you know what? At the end of the day, it's really been all about you and all the good stuff that you've done, and you're pretty impressed with yourself. Thank you very much. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ and Christ alone. He paid it all, all to Him I owe. There's no good I could bring. There's no offering I could bring to ever pay back all that he's provided for me in himself. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the ideal Israelite who earned the favor of God, didn't break one law, didn't do anything wrong. He was pure not just in his deeds, but in his heart all the way to the cross. He obeyed the Father so that he could save you. If you'll put down the charade of pride and take up Christ as your only hope. If you'll turn, he'll save you. But wide-scale rejection of Jesus among Jews was not unexpected. 
And God's desire was to bring this salvation. The same salvation that's just been called the hope of Israel. Described as the kingdom of God brought in through King Jesus. This salvation was to come to Gentiles as well. Who are Gentiles? Anybody that's not a Jew. Everybody else. That's, that's people from all nations all over the planet. And is this not the pattern that we've already seen in Acts before? In Antioch, after Jews rejected the gospel, Paul and Barnabas say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. In Corinth, we read in Acts 18.6, when the Jews opposed and reviled Paul, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. I will now go to the Gentiles. Whether the Israelites recognized it or not, God's plan for people from all nations streaming into the heavenly city and coming into the kingdom of God under Israel's king and bowing down to Israel, it's well underway. In the proclamation of the resurrection and reign of Jesus, and as Jesus is changing hearts of sinners who repent and believe and are saved by Him. And the Lord has irrevocably sent the message of salvation out, God's salvation, to Gentiles. Not just to Jews only, but to Gentiles as well. And do you see what Paul adds in verse 28? Right at the end. Remember, he's talking to Jews. He's talking to Jewish leaders who are largely rejecting the gospel and his message. And he says, they're going to listen. Which is an implied challenge to them, right? Are, are you going to listen? But, but I'm going to the Gentiles because they're going to listen. Paul has not given up on Jews believing. But he's not going to delay the work of taking Jesus to the Gentiles any longer. He hopes, as we read in Romans chapter 10 and 11, to to make Jews jealous and provoke them to find in Jesus the the hope of Israel fulfilled. But either way, Paul, Paul has one mission, and there are two possible responses. His mission is to exalt and glorify Jesus and point to Him as the way of salvation. And you can either receive Jesus or you can reject Jesus. Those are the two options. Some of you here this morning are like, well, I'm still thinking about it. I'm glad you're thinking about it, but don't think about it too much longer. You're not guaranteed another day. You're not guaranteed the next breath. You drive home today, there's no guarantee that you're going to make it home today. So I'm glad you're considering Jesus, but don't make sure your considering of Jesus isn't just finding yet one more reason to cancel Jesus out of your head. Finding one more reason not to believe the truth that is so evident it should smack you in the face. You say, well, I don't know. I mean, a a guy risen from the dead, that's crazy talk. Is it? You tell me where the church came from. What's crazy is is a 
of people saying a man raised from the dead when they knew full well where the body of Jesus was, but they couldn't find it. And then Paul, who's against Christ and against Christians, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and the thing spreads like wildfire across cultures, across generations, across languages. Find another moment in history like that. Find another religion in history like that. It's almost like it's supernatural. It's almost like God raised his son from the dead. It's almost like he poured out his Holy Spirit and empowered people to preach the gospel and change them from the inside out. And we're standing here today because God did what he said. It doesn't make, there's no other explanation that makes sense. But to the hard-hearted, dim, dull, callous heart, you will spend your life finding a reason to write out God and you'll spend eternity in hell saying, why in the world did I do that? Don't do that. There's one mission, there's one king, there's one people of God, and there's only one way to join them, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lies any longer. In a moment, we're going to sing about the king of kings who is reigning and ruling in righteousness. I'm going to invite you in a minute to step into his kingdom to leave sin behind and to look to your Savior for all your hope and strength and life and meaning and purpose until He comes. Paul's got one mission. And in 30 and 31, he shares the gospel not just with Gentiles, but with all who come to him. I, I believe with all my heart that some of these Jews who were beginning to believe then did believe. I believe some were convinced, but primarily Gentiles come to him, and then what happens? Boom, the story ends. I was talking to Samuel about this yesterday. I'm like, how satisfied are you with that ending? Like, I've been tracing Paul since chapter 9, bro. And it's, that's it? Paul's awaiting trial and he's sharing the gospel for two whole years and you don't tell me what happens next, Luke? I hate stories that end like that. <laughs> Drives me absolutely out of my mind. But is this ending not brilliant? You see, by ending before Paul's ending... Acts makes us reflect on the purpose of the non-ending ending. Why is there a non-ending ending? And here's the point. Acts is not ultimately about the apostles. Acts is not ultimately about Paul. Jesus is the main character of Acts. And his reign through the heralding of the gospel is the theme. Acts is about the ongoing work of Jesus through his spirit-empowered people, which means it's our time, North Roanoke, to take the gospel wherever our king sends us and share it no matter what it costs us, wherever he takes us, in spite of the pain. And we do it knowing King Jesus wins. Paul is the final model in a book that invites us to join Jesus's story and the lessons are clear no matter the adversity the affliction the arrest or the rejection we face our king is on the move and he's using people now like he used Paul and the church then the story is not over instead finally 
the story continues as we boldly herald the kingdom and teach about our king until he comes. The story closes with Paul awaiting trial in Rome for two whole years, 24 full months in a rented room, welcoming all who came to him. And I know all of you, like me, want to know what happened to Paul, and I'm not sure. Early Christian tradition suggests that Paul was eventually released and took the gospel as far west as Spain before being rearrested under the reign of Nero and condemned to death. But Luke doesn't tell us that. Instead, his spirit-inspired book ends with Paul leveraging his imprisonment for the proclamation of the kingdom of God and for teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, we read in verse 31. Though he is a prisoner, the gospel is unchained. He's wearing a chain, but the gospel is unbound. And the world might come against the church. The flesh might come against you. Satan might come against you. But if you'll hold on to Jesus and look to Christ and not lose sight of the gospel, the gospel, no matter where you go, no matter what's going on, the gospel will keep on running because God is behind it. Paul keeps proclaiming God's reign through the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus. Though though he's seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus is nevertheless on the move to the ends of the earth through the faithful witness of his spirit-indwelled people. Paul keeps preaching the forgiveness of sin and the death of death and anything else that would keep us from knowing God through faith in Jesus. Jesus, friends, is that great. So the non-ending ending in Acts means it's our time. The same Spirit will give us boldness to proclaim entry into the kingdom through faith in our King. It's the same King and it's the same message. Though Paul is in prison, he is legally unhindered in sharing the gospel. We, we don't get the end of Paul because our job is now to be like Paul, to pattern our lives after the pattern of Acts. Peterson says this, the challenge for Christians today is this, consider how that pattern might be followed in your own situation and time. Acts is over, but the gospel is not. Acts is over, but Jesus' work continues. To the Christian, as our worship team comes on up, to the Christian I want to ask you, Will you share King Jesus and entry into his kingdom through him and him alone in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit wherever he takes you? And to the non-Christian, Jew or Gentile, why would you wait any longer? The king is reigning. Step into the kingdom by faith in King Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, you sent your son. Lord Jesus, you came down, eternal son of God. No less God than God the Father or God the Spirit, but you did not consider yourself 
to be cheated, to be the one to empty yourself of all but love and unite yourself with our humanity and to live a perfect life and die an atoning death in full obedience to the Father. And Father, you have raised your Son and given Him a name above every other name. You've exalted Him at your right hand. And Spirit of God, you have been sent to unite sinners with a Savior that we might know and worship and follow Him as the, the King of kings with a kingdom that will never end. God, I pray if there's even one today who is not united with Christ, if there's even one who is still dead in their trespasses and sins, that King Jesus, through the preaching of the gospel, would get the victory in their lives today. And God, for your church, I pray that you would find us like Paul, whether we're in prison or whether we're free, trusting that the gospel will run and that you will continue to save until our King returns. God, move in this place for the glory of your Son. Move in this place. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.